Hello everyone and welcome to Flawless, a music podcast. My name is Liam and I'm here with my two co-hosts Grant. Hi there. And George. Bonjour. Ooh, ooh, saucy. Uh, each episode, one of the hosts or a guest nominates an album that they think is flawless and we talk about why they love it, how they discovered it and what makes it flawless for them. We have a Patreon. You can back us from as little as $1 a month and there's content bonuses at 5 and $10 a month is my usual spiel, but... I'm changing my mind on that because we're putting way too much effort into the bonus episodes to only give them out to 5 and $10 or people. So if you back us on Patreon, you get the bonus episodes. No levels. I don't. We don't care anymore. You can, <laughs> oh, there we go. Yeah. Made an executive decision. Rip it. We got no standards. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can find us at patreon.com slash flawlessamp. And we're also part of the Play On Radio Network, along with some other great podcasts like the Australian Music Diaries. Our episodes air Monday afternoons at 5pm Eastern Daylight Savings Time, and you can hear them at playonradio.live. So, we do have a special guest with us today, here in the George's Living Room studio. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Andrew Stafford. I am the author of two books. Uh, the first one being Pig City, released in 2004, and in its third edition and still in print today uh, and finally got the second book monkey off my back last year with the publication of a music memoir called something to believe in nice. um, i also uh, contribute to the guardian regularly guardian australia uh, and also to the age and the sydney morning herald writing variously about uh, afl football covering the brisbane lions and gold coast suns up here um, and various journalism and bibs, bid, bits and bobs elsewhere. Um, like you, I also have a Patreon page and your listeners can find me at patreon.com slash Andrew Stafford. Awesome. And well worth a subscribe. I can testify to that. So would you like to tell us what album you've nominated today? Today I have nominated a very special record uh, by Liz Fair, her debut album Exile in Guyville from 1993. So, I guess to start off with, how did you discover Exit to Guyville? Was it or Exile, Exile in Guyville? Sorry, I'm going to get that wrong so many times. Um, yeah, how did you discover it? Were you sort of listening to it when it came first came out? How I discovered it was actually through re reading Rolling Stone at the time, right? Um, mm. And it was reviewed alongside Rid of Me by PJ Harvey. I was hugely into PJ Harvey in particular at the time. And it was, and Liz's record was reviewed in conjunction with it. Actually, got the better review. And although my first interest was in Polly Harvey, I was like, "This sounds interesting. I want to check it out." Now, mm -hmm. to put this in context, I was 22. I was doing an arts degree at the time, and 
I was doing a few, among other things, mostly English communications, but I was doing a few women's study subjects, believe it or not, a bit of women's literature and so forth. I was, and this is potentially going to sound really wanky, but it's true. I was <laughs> really quite earnestly trying to engage with feminism. I really wanted to know where women were coming from. That was partly the strength of my mother's influence. It was also films at the time, like Jane Campion's The Piano. Um, I already mentioned PJ Harvey, which came out at the same time. And also, a, a little bit earlier, bands like Hole and Babes in Toyland and mm-hmm. you know the start of uh, What Was Riot Girl as well, You know yeah. bands like Bikini Kill. All of this is around 1992, 93, uh, 93 okay? Um, and I wouldn't say, that, you know, just to... For, for anyone who's kind of going, oh, yeah, sure, you know. Look, I wouldn't <laughs> say my my motives were entirely pure. I seriously couldn't find a shag on a rock at this particular time. But I was trying to figure stuff out as I was trying to figure my, myself out too, yeah. and that took a long time. Sure. Uh, out of all of those various things that I've mentioned in this kind of melting pot, Exile and Guyville is the album that's actually stayed with me the longest, partly because I think it hit me at that period when I was starting to to develop an identity as an adult, and I was a late bloomer. Let's make mm-hmm. no bones about that. Partly because I was fundamentally sympathetic to its message, mm-hmm. but most of all, as I've grown up and I've you know accumulated more life experience, um, the details of these songs, and it's a very detailed record, have only rung truer. Um, the emotional complexities of the songs. I think are relatable both for men and women as much as they're told from a women's point of view. It's a relatively quiet album. It's very intimate. As much as it's a rock and roll album at its core, it feels like listening to someone tell you their secrets. Mm-hmm. And partly for that reason and partly because it had a small recording budget, I think five to ten grand, something like that, it's deliberately lo-fi. Um, Fair, Liz Fair dug in and played her shitty little PV amp on her own original (laughs) settings rather than go with what Brad Wood, her producer, wanted her to play through. And that's part of of the charm of the overall record. It's very dry. It's very bare bones. Slightly amateurish. And I think working within your limitations and sometimes even setting limitations on yourself is a a really useful thing in rock music. You know, you look at the Ramones or the White Stripes, they did Mm -hmm. this too, you know. Mm sometimes working within their technical limitations. And Liz Fair wasn't a particularly accomplished singer or guitar player, but that's also part of the charm of the record. And because she's navigating really complex emotional terrain, I think that would have been slightly undercut if she had been gifted with technical proficiency and a great Mm -hmm. voice. It would have lent the album an, an additional level of confidence that would have jarred against an album where she feels like she's feeling her way through the emotional landscape of one's early 20s, which is Mm. very difficult. The other side to this, and this is the key thing about Exile that everybody talks about and can't be escaped, her ambitions were actually stratospheric. Yes. She was obsessed with the Rolling Stones album Exile on Main Street. One day, apparently, she was having a conversation with a boy who was taunting her, saying, oh, yeah, you know, why don't you make a record like that? basically doubting that she had it in her to make anything much, let alone anything that good. And Liz Fair took it as a dare. 
and styled the album as a literal song-by-song, or non-literal song-by-song response over the entire 18 tracks of Exile on Main Street, saying, I'm going to make a record called Exile in Guyville. Guyville being a kind of amalgam of the guys that she was seeing, dating, sometimes just sleeping with, the people that were around around in her scene. Mm -hmm. And this was, and the scene that we're talking about was Chicago in the early '90s, which was hyper, you know, the the indie rock scene then was hyper masculine. Mm. You're talking about people like Steve Albini, the Jesus Lizard, Shellac, Tortoise, who became post rock icons a little bit later on, and kind of a, a lot of guys. Guys, yeah. that's what Guyville, Guyville is, yeah. is. Mm-hmm. and. And it also, and there's an irony here because, of course, I'm a, I'm a male rock writer or part, sometime music writer of a certain age, and I know what these guys are like. Mm-hmm. I have been that guy who will be, you know, taking a lady who I might be interested in through the intricacies of a record and she's kind of on the couch nodding along going, <laughs> oh, yeah, what do I have contribute to contribute to this discussion, which was what Liz Fair felt like. I, I realise how naff that is and there's a certain sad irony in it that I've ended up making something of a living out of yeah. it. <laughs> so that's the basic premise and context of, yeah. the, of the record and the extraordinary thing is that from that stratospheric ambition and that sheer chutzpah of, of youth she was able to pull off a, one of a record is that is now a you know well and truly a recognized classic mm. it's had its 25th anniversary kind of repackaging last year and very much you know very much lived up to what she actually wanted to do which is so rare mm. so and, and this is where we get to you know my idea of what is a flawless record and this kind of hints at what I um, am looking for when I'm reviewing a record as well, say for mm. The Guardian. Um, I'm not trying to review on my terms mm. of what my own ideals are. Yeah. I'm trying to get inside the artist's head and think, what are they trying to do here? Mm. And have they pulled it off? Yeah. And my idea of a perfect record is when the um, where the idea behind a record and the execution seems to be in perfect symmetry. And in that sense, I think Fair absolutely pulled it off. Yeah, cool. There we go. That's well, a... that's an intro. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Someone's oh. someone's brought their notes, haven't they? <laughs> mm. So I like to prepare. Yeah, yeah. clearly, um, journalists. <laughs> George, hello. Had you heard of Liz Fair and, in particular, this record before? Yes. I thought you might. Yes, I have. Did, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, as a staunch feminist myself, uh, and as a woman in the music scene, um, as a guitarist in the music scene, yes, I've spent my I, I spent my youth being told that I couldn't do anything. Um, and then there were people like Liz Fair, there were um, Juliana Hatfield, PJ Harvey, etc. Um, around the, that I was listening to and going that if they can do that, I can do that. And Mm -hmm. they don't have to be perfect. And then I was also listening to bands like Pavement and going, well, they're certainly not perfect. Um, So (laughs) it was like, it was fair. So uh, the main thing, I didn't have this record. So I I had Juliana Hatfield records and I had PJ Harvey records. um, And I had like Belly and Starred and other like people along that. Throwing muses? Yeah, throwing muses. I didn't actually own any, but listened to. uh, But then... Also had other stuff in the ilk, basically, mm-hmm. um, around that time. But it was this was all kind of before me 
but I, it was, I had to find it later yeah. kind of stuff. And I had like the older guys that really wanted to show me the way, you know, <laughs> by playing these certain albums. Yes. Um, so this was, yeah, one of the, uh, this would have been one of the albums I probably heard. But then I l- latched on to different, like, I latched on to someone like PJ Harvey more. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she's, I know she was a bit more visceral, which yeah. was like, was my thing. But the, the main so, one that I remembered yeah. was Never Said from here Mm -hmm. and then yeah you mentioned pj harvey because when i went to go and live in paris when i was a teenager i had brunette hair and i showed up at a hostel and my maiden name is harvey and the guy at the desk went avi you are english you are pj harvey and i was like (laughs) oh my god yeah i totally am that's great that's why pj harvey's totally come to a hostel in the middle of bastille that's fine um so yeah so it was that's more in my ilk but i'd heard the record i've definitely heard never said before but um i can't remember having heard the the whole record but mm-hmm. i will have done now if i can just yeah. interrupt for a second because i think never said's a really really good place to start yeah about this well, we haven't heard about into grant, the, the, heard the discussion just a second grant yeah. uh, so <laughs> with never said it is about shutting up because you don't feel that your opinion is valued mm-hmm. particularly in the context of music and uh yeah as i said I've been that guy. It's really embarrassing. You know, the guy that monopolises the stereo and lectures from from on high and about music history. Grant, sorry. Absolutely. Grant. No problem at all. No. My response would only disappoint you guys. I had heard nothing of <laughs> yeah. this album of Liz Fair. Um, you know, 1993 uh, was in a place that uh, was still under apartheid lines, <laughs> to be clear. So um, along, I suppose, with, um, with that segregation, um, I suppose an album like this wouldn't necessarily have been punted, certainly on any mainstream radio. The mm-hmm. only, only guy that um, might have put put it on the air it would have been a guy called Barney Simon, and that would have been like after 10 o'clock at night, and I'm 93, yeah. I'm 14. So um, there was, I, I heard nothing of this. Yeah, uh, that's fair. Liam? Um, I'd heard of Liz Fair, but I hadn't heard this song. So my proper musical education started around 95 96 and i usually didn't spend a lot of time going back from there it was usually just whatever was coming out next that's what i was listening to so um she put out a song uh something i think polyester bride something whatever one of the her singles from one of the albums in either 94 or 98 made it to triple j that was from white chocolate space yeah which i think was 98 which i think i think that's right yeah so that's that would have probably been my i would have heard her on the radio and gone hey this lady's got a cool voice and there's not a lot of there's definitely not enough people sounding like this on the radio. Um, but I, and then ever since then, I've known she's always been around. She's someone that a lot of people name check as an influence and mm-hmm. talk about how important her albums are, but I'd never really gone back and investigated. So, yeah, this was my first exposure to a full Liz Fair album. Andrew, have you seen her live? The big only, questions. Only once, and it was actually only last year, in fact, was her first oh. tour of Australia uh, in March 2019, and I think it was part of the tour celebrating the aforementioned 25th anniversary of the album, which nice. was in 2018, and she finally made it to Australia in March last year. She played a few shows with uh, a small band, including, I think, I can't remember if it was Casey Rice... I think it was Casey Rice who ended up moving to Australia um, and is plays a little bit of lead guitar on Exile in Guyville. But in Brisbane, she, I presume, it, it was 
sparsely attended, shall we say, that show at the Trifford, maybe a couple of hundred people there, absolutely dedicated fans, but mm. a lot of empty space in the room. And uh, possibly in, in deference to, to that, she was playing just as a duo, just herself and uh, someone else playing, not Casey Wright, but someone else playing a little mm-hmm. guitar. Um, so a very a very intimate atmosphere and she did you know she you know some artists might have been annoyed at being booked into a relatively large venue and not pulling a a crowd and this Mm. was the middle of the week in middle of the week in brisbane but she she turned it into something that felt more like a more like a house party gig and was completely adorable you know it it was um i had tears in my eyes many times in this gig because Mm. she did mean so much to me that record meant Mm. so much so it was, uh, you know, it was great to finally see her. She apparently, um, she when she started out performing, she had terrible stage fright um, and she was really a recording artist before she was a live performer. She has managed to get past that over the years. I'm not sure if she has a big fear of flying, but I think that was, I, I have a feeling that was one of the reasons why it had taken so long for her to get out here because there had certainly been offers from promoters before that. So did the show focus on the uh, this album or did she sort of know because it's the first time in Australia she did like a big retrospective of all the different albums? N- it was very much focused on right. Exile in Guyville cool. and it probably needs to be acknowledged here that and I think Liz Fair would acknowledge this as well that Exile in Guyville is by far her greatest work mm-hmm. as her okay. debut and... The unkind way of putting it is that, <laughs> frankly, it was all a bit downhill after that. And she right. hasn't uh, sh- she hasn't made a, a full length record since 2010. Um, interestingly, um, she attempted to make an album with Ryan Adams in 2017, and that will now not be released. It was not a successful project, and it fell foul of some of the now well-documented issues that have uh, seen other musicians, other female musicians abandon projects with Ryan Adams. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So a bit of interesting backstory there. She also released a memoir, a very, very good memoir last cool. year called Horror Stories. And I get the impression that she's kind of circling back. I think she might be recording with Brad Wood again, who was the okay. producer of Exile. Cool. Mm-hmm. And I think she's kind of, yeah, circling back to that earlier sound and thinking, yeah, that was kind of really where it's at. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, as you've mentioned a couple of times, it was a debut album. came out in June 1993. Um, it's ranked at 327 by Rolling Stone in its 500 greatest albums of all time. And it's sold uh, 491,000 copies, so just under half a million copies. Uh, it's got two singles. So the pre- previously mentioned Never Said and then Stratford on Guy, which comes towards like it's like the second last mm. song on the album. It's tucked away back there. That's another song. There's several songs on Exile and Guyville where Liz Fair really struggles with uh, the melody, mm. and that's that's one of them. It's got you know it's it's got a low vocal in the verses, and she um, she can't really quite quite nail that. But she um, opens out in the choruses. A, a funny anecdote about Stratford on Guy's uh, the, the line. It's like she's reading you a poem, really, more than a song, and she sings. Um, it's about flying into Chicago at night, and there's the line. In 27D, I was behind the wing. Apparently, her fans write to her and let her know that they deliberately try to book 27D when right. they're flying. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's dedication. Nice, yeah. isn't it? It took an hour. Maybe a day. 
has um, doubled up vocals, like chorus on her vocals in that one. So I mm. guess if she was struggling, it would make sense that you, as a vocalist, you'd double down on that in order to make it a fuller sound and support, yeah. support your sound if you are struggling a little bit. So that yeah. makes sense. And she's clever too. In several songs, she has... Uh, uh, multiple counter melodies going on mm-hmm. o- over the what should be the top melody of the song. Um, probably my favourite is Johnny Sunshine, where she's reading out an mm. itemised list of all of the things that her lover has stolen from her. Yeah. And then she comes over the top saying, I think I've been taken for everything I own. Mm-hmm. And uh, she has the. really folksy cutesy sound over the top of that like distorted toss and yeah because that one opens up like with a big power riff to start yeah. that's and then, right and then it's it actually, sort of drops that away a little bit it's, it's actually the most staccato vocals probably the most rock and roll song on the yeah. album and it's also the one that most directly references the corresponding track on exile on main street which uh is all down the line and that song is about basically guys hitting the road and blowing out of town and leaving their cares and responsibilities behind because that's the spirit of rock and roll, yeah. isn't it? You yeah. know? Whereas Liz Fair inverts this and she talks about it as um, sings the song from the point of view of the person who's actually been left behind. Because mm-hmm. she said that none of the songs are actually about her. Yeah. about our friends or about anyone they're just songs that she yeah. just things that she wrote so it's not like a these are personal anecdotes and some of them are comp- they're dichotomies of each other mm. so they yeah, very much so yeah so in some of them like back to back some uh, of them. yeah exactly like literally like you'll go from like you screwed me over to i'm gonna screw you over mm. i'm that horrible person blah, yeah. blah. and it's just like she's just picking and choosing what uh persona to be in each track and like giving zero fucks about it i think that's right there's a a really wild oscillation between heavy bravado snark snark as we would understand it today really Mm. in social media age yes Mm -hmm. and extreme vulnerability throughout this record often from song to song so Uh, so definitely between fuck and run and then girls 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 was like yep i'm going from um the and I want a boyfriend. I want all that stupid old shit, like letters and uh, sodas. sodas. Yes, it's a marvellous mm. line. And so it's a really cool thing. And then the following one, she, in Girls, 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 she says... Because I take full advantage of every man I meet again. Like, yeah, right. I'm on board. <laughs> the other great example of that kind of oscillation, uh, only a slightly further on, is between. And I know we will talk about flower, but 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 mm-hmm. you have shatter before that. Uh, and this is an interesting one because you actually get both of these personas in the one song. I know that I- 
and then she finds herself emotionally undone by someone who exposes that vulnerability. This is another song where she struggles with the low pitching of the melody in the verses and then she opens herself right up in the chorus and she sings, I don't know if I could fly a plane. This makes me really emotional actually. Well enough to tailspin out your name or high enough to lose control completely. Honey, I'm thinking maybe, you know, just maybe. Mm, yeah, it's the, the, she jumps, not all over the place, but yeah, she w- oscillates between songs a lot and it's, yeah. And, that and whole, I don't mind that that, that broke s- me up a little bit to, mm-hmm. to, Thank you. to get through that because I think uh, that's an illustration of how much emotional power this record still has yeah, on for me. Sure. And that tr- particular track, sorry, Shatter, um, starts with over two and a half minutes of just like a reverb guitar mm-hmm. thing. Just yeah. two and a half minutes of yeah. just this guitar playing again and again and again before the bass joins in, before anything else, and then the vocals come in. So there's, yeah. a, there's so a very handful, daring, very unconventional. There's song. a handful of songs on the album that just sound like we've talked about um, Nick Drake. Yeah. Where it's just like, just leave me alone in a studio with a guitar and I'll produce something amazing at the end of it. And there's a handful of songs in here that's just like, it's just her and a guitar and they come back and add effects and add some other stuff onto it. But you feel like the way she started it is just, just leave me in the studio with a guitar and I'm just going to strum and sing what comes out of me and just see how it goes from there. In a very 1990s way. Yeah. Like all the sounds on it, I was just like, you, if you'd have put this record in front of me and gone, when did this come out? I'll say flannel shirts and ripped jeans. That's when it came out. Like it definitely came out in the early to mid nineties because it's got that definite sound of that era. So, yeah. so Andrew, that little tremor in your voice, and I appreciate that it's, it's an emotional record to speak of mm. for you. Do you, do you look back? The, the reason it's resonated now, I suppose in, in the fullness of time, it's 25 plus years. Yeah. Do you look back at yourself and go, wow, you've, you know, you, you, do you still feel some of that confusion or it's contentment with how you've grown? No, or? it's actually it's actually more that uh, it actually resonates more with me now at the age of 48 going on 49 yeah. than, than it did when I was 22, 23 because I've got more life experience to yes. kind of to kind of connect with, uh, as I said before, the emotional complexities of some of those songs. It is very interesting um, that, George, as you said before, that she herself confessed that she was making up many of these scenarios because she also didn't have that sort of broader life experience at the time. And I think it's a great feat of um, empathetic songwriting. Yeah, she for was sure. able to construct a song like Divorce Song, for example. Now, I got divorced a couple of years ago, so you can imagine that uh, that, that song's... Us You're not the end, yeah, we've been divorced too. as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so... <laughs> Liam's it's shit. <laughs> Only happy, my like he, he's happily like in with his first marriage. So yeah, uh, yeah we're we're all cool. So and yeah. divorce song is probably now the the most cherished song on that album for many of okay. Liz's fans. It's the the emotional centerpiece of the record. It's about how lovers take each other for granted, and eventually they become strangers to one another. Uh, the key line there is, and the license said you had to stick around until I was dead. But if you're tired of looking at my face, I guess I already am. Yeah, twenty-two-year-old wrote it. Eh? Yeah, <laughs> uh, twenty-six, I think, at the time. Oh, she? she probably wrote it. Actually, no, she would have been probably twenty-two when she wrote it. She was a bit older when she recorded it. It's also we've Being talked there. a lot about the lyrics, but it's worth touching on the sound here as well. Mm-hmm. Songs like "Divorce Song," "Soap Soap Star Joe," which was one of my favourites, mesmerising. These actually do um, pretty successfully approximate a kind of cut-down version of what the what the Rolling Stones would mm. do. It, it, it does have a 
shambling, basic rock and roll quality that was pretty unusual at the time when everything was distorted. Yeah. These stars weren't, weren't distorted. The lead line on Mesmerising, very clearly reminiscent, and I think, I'm sure, deliberately reminiscent of Gimme Shelter. Mm-hmm. It's I, funny you say Soap for Joan Divorce Song because they both have harmonicas. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The big, big crashing in harmonica at the end of Divorce Song is super yep. cool. Big, yep. I'm a big harps fan, so yeah. there's, <laughs> there's a few things. What do I like? Claps, ha- little woos. Hand claps. Uh, oh. Hand claps, woos, and a uh, bit of harps. Yeah, yeah and you, strings. And you get all of those things on Rolling Stones records in abundance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I do, but I, I like them when they're cheeky. So, uh, but, that's cool. Yeah, speaking of the hand claps, they're on Mesmerizing too, which is yes. one of my favorite mm-hmm. from the album. It's like still got the full, like it's the full band, so it's not just her, it's the drum, guitars, bass, the whole thing. But then it's still that really stripped back sound. They're not sort of going for it. And then there, that really cool guitar riff behind the chorus and the hand claps on the end really make it. Mesmerizing No drums, yeah, which is interesting as mm. well on that song. On that one, it's just uh, the maracas that give it that yeah, it sexy like sway and groove, oh, doesn't it? Sounds like a little egg shaker, things. Yeah, stuff. I actually thought it was a shaker, and then I checked the credits, and it was it's, listed it is, as maracas. It actually is just maracas. Oh yeah. wow! I, I was convinced it was a shaker shaker. I uh, was I too. Just <laughs> like the idea of someone holding one of those little plastic eggs that you get in primary school and like, yeah. shaking that in the record in, in the studio, but that's cool. So it has that one's got some nice um, soloing guitar lines um, in mesmerizing um, over the rest of the band. So it's just a really like because sometimes it's just I'm playing guitar, I'm playing guitar, I'm playing guitar, mm. and sometimes it's there's some guitar, but there's also some nice little lines kicking mm. about over the top. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the bass lines in a few of those tracks were really holding some stuff together in between vocals. Then the bass would come in conversationally with the vocals. Um, just holding a, stuff together that might otherwise be in danger of falling apart. A little bit. Sometimes yeah. you're like, where are you going? And then the bass will come in and you're like, there you are. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Um, and it kind of, and yeah, and it would bring us together because there is that variety between full band and then her on a piano or her on a guitar. Mm. And she, oh no, is it Canary, isn't it? She just plays the piano on her yeah. own. Yeah, that's right. And that mm-hmm. song is very reminiscent of, I think, one of her influences, who'd be a 70s, early 70s singer songwriter called Judy Sill. Probably not very well known to many of your audience, but I cannot recommend her second album, Heart Food, in particular, highly enough. Um, hers is a we'll, we'll get into the weeds talking too much about about her, but um, a, a really tragic backstory and kind of a, a a female equivalent to say Nick Drake in the okay. early seventies. Oh, right. Okay. okay. Yeah, we've we've been down the we've been Nick down the Nick Drake, Drake road. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, well, but- your Nick Drake fans will love Judy Hill. Oh, cool. there you go. Okay. Well, oh, Sill, S-I-L-L. That's right, yep. Well, cause and I'm, Judy, uh, J-U-D-E-E. Oh. Just okay. to trick you. Trixie. Right. Okay. Because yeah. I'm a big Tori Amos fan, so when it comes in, there's a woman at a piano, I'm like, come on. Fortune. Keen. 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 Nice. Keen. Yeah. And it had that, like, um, it had a really nice little sweet line, even though it's, so it's kind of sweet and then goes ominous. Thank you. 
and it has a lyric. I sing like a good canary. I come when cold. I come. That's all. And I'm like, yep. She's just, it's like reminiscent of like a little little girl doing what she's told mm. and everything. Like starts that whole um, story um, before going into the minor key and then becoming a little bit more ominous throughout the, to, to the end of the song. But it's an accolade to her to say that she was playing piano on that and she's been playing guitar on most of the other, mm. like, other tracks and stuff. So I was like, hmm. Yeah. Multi-instruments. Yes. A lighter lyric on that particular song, I clean my mouth because froth comes out. And again, that's about living up to her expectations. She's a you know, relatively privileged white suburban woman living up to expectations of what a, what, what a nice girl is supposed to be. Mm. Uh, and again, as that... Again, that like wash her soap, wash her wash mouth your, out with soap. And that's water. right, and she and <laughs> yeah. she's very skilled at that's talking tough. dirty, as 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 we as we yep. know. Yep, I was threatened mm. with that one when I was well, a kid. We can talk about that right now because I'm gonna go back to something that I think that you guys were talking about a moment ago, where none of the songs are about her. I'm not sure I buy that. I, it's very like it's good for her to say that, obviously, and then people don't try and dissect too much in the sure. wrong things, but. Uh, Dance of the Seven Veils, which is just her and electric guitar. Hell yeah. I'm 99% sure that's just directed at John Henderson. It's like just straight at his face. So um, when she was coming up, John Henderson owned the Chicago label Feel Good All Over, heard the tapes that she was putting out under the name Girly Sound, and then contacted her and said, hey, we're going to work together. I'm going to make you famous. It's going to be great. She was like, yep, that sounds cool. Starts recording with him. He's telling her, this is how your music's going to sound now. Mm, no, I don't I don't think that's really going to work. And then they ended up, so he was the one who brought Brad Wood in and then she ended yes. up disconnecting from John and going and just working with Brad Wood and doing a whole thing. But it did lead to my favorite, one of my favorite things I found out about, because we've talked about Gomez, who mm. got signed after playing one show. Mm-hmm. Uh, Liz kind of got signed after playing like even less than that because she had, uh, I mean, she was playing the shows but the girly sound tape made it to the head of Matador Records. And then they were like, they reached out to her and they were like, yeah, okay, we'll sign you. And uh, Gerald Cosloy, the co-president of Matador at the time said, we usually don't sign people we haven't met or heard other records by or seen. But I had a hunch and I called her back and said, okay. Like, <laughs> how crazy is that to get a record Jeez. deal with like you've been playing shows, but they haven't seen them. So you've got mm. one tape that's made their way into their hand. And it's like, yeah, record label. And that was purely on the strength of the word of mouth and yeah. the, and, the, and the strength of the. I think basically it was. I think it was two songs. I think it was mm. "Fuck and Run" and "Divorce Song." It was those two songs that hooked him. And he, I think, the comment was that um, we've got to record this right away. Mm. You get. Yeah. You're in the '90s. You've got a white girl with a guitar who's willing to swear and drop the C bomb. Yeah. Sign <laughs> yeah. Like we're at we're at that era, guys. Mm. Let's we're gonna sign you and we're gonna put you at the front of everything because it's uh, you're gonna sell us some records. And so clearly did. We just, probably yeah. need to talk about flower at this point, don't we? Can I just bring in Seven Vows again? Because I'm gonna loop oh, back yes. around just yeah. to talk about one of my favorite lyrics from that song. Then, ah, yes, where she says, "Johnny, my love, get out of the business. The odds are getting." Now, 
Now, for people who aren't familiar with how the, the things of the podcast work, I actually said the C word then, and I really don't like saying the C word, but I figure no. if she said it, I'm quoting a lyric, I'm going to say it. So you will <laughs> have just heard her say it, but I said it in real life too. And it's just, yeah, like you don't you don't expect it and it's not it's not a super angry in tone all the way through song and then it just slides in there and you're, the first time you're like, did, did she just say that? Okay, now I'm paying attention and she repeats it later. It's like, okay, so she's just got no qualms about being who she is on the debut record, just not, this it's is me straight a, up and you either an love it or leave it. Astoundingly authentic record mm-hmm. in that regard. Um, just so you know, in one of my bands back in the UK, um, and I'm like the cutesy girly girl in the band, um, I got to shout the C word um, as part of some lyrics 16 times at the end of one of my songs. And nice. I was very, very happy about it. So, because people were not expecting it from no. the well spoken girl who was singing all these <laughs> lovely little falsettos. And then it was just like shouting out a whole lot of love and a cunt load of hate. Um, yeah. And people were going, What does she just say? And I'm like, I'm saying it 16 say it more times. So, uh, you better rock and roll, people. Um, yeah. So, I'm, I, you know, channeled without knowing it i was channeling my liz um, as i was hollering that from the stages of the uk mm. and what year was this if i can ask what year mm. uh 2012 to 2014 mm-hmm. yeah just is good fun until yeah. i moved to australia for a boy uh and ruined everything um yes so that was good but um i enjoyed the fact that i just heard liam say the c word even though <laughs> you won't listeners mm. um so you wanted to take it to flower? Well, I, th- I think we have to because it's probably the most notorious song on the record because of its language. It mm-hmm. has largely explicit yeah. sexual lyrics. Yes, <laughs> that's right. And and I did read in preparation for this podcast that she did agonise about whether or not she wanted to put this song on the record, which is a highly explicit um, description of female desire. And I think we can take it that as a you know woman of the world at that age this you know she was certainly drawing from a direct experience with this one and she decided that she had to put it on the record because she was trying to create a fully rounded portrait Mm -hmm. uh, of being a woman and this was part of it Um, and so she's talking dirty it's filthy and I would be lying not to say at the age of 22 that that aspect did not Appeal to you. Appeal to me when I first heard it. Well, Josh, you to say appeal or confront there, but appeal's good, appeal's good too. Well, both. But there's yeah. angelic both. vocals over the top of it, though. Yeah. So there's like yeah. the really sweet loveliness, and then it's like in a monotonal, like, deafness. Here, I'm, here I am saying exactly what I want to do. Me, I'm a your blowjob queen. You're probably shy and introspective. That's not part of my objective. I just want your fresh young Jimmy Slamming, slamming, ramming in me Every time I see your face I think of things I'm pure unchaste I want to fuck you like a dog I take you home and make you like it Like in, in a real nux juxtaposition between the two In, in detail Yeah, uh, I've written worse <laughs> <laughs> But of course at the time I had never t- heard sure. a woman talk like that on a record, including PJ Harvey, whose rid of me at the time was pretty rough. Mm-hmm. But I hadn't heard anything like this. And I knew as much as I was, you know, secretly kind of thrilled by it, I knew that that wasn't the point. I knew that she was throwing down a challenge too, especially mm-hmm. in the context of the surrounding material, which was Shatter on one side, Johnny Sunshine on the other. 
and having that song sitting in between those two at the end of the third side. And it's great, by the way, to listen this, to this record on vinyl where you have those natural gaps right. of yep. turning the record over twice. Cool. Mm-hmm. To have that sitting there gave it a great deal more, a great deal more natural impact. So yeah, because we talk about when the albums are released on vinyl, but this probably this would have come out on CD, but then also on vinyl at the same time, I guess. It did, yes. I still yeah. have my original copy. Okay, cool. So is it? Okay. So you said is it three? You turn it over twice. So is it four, two, two double sided? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So okay. about four songs yep. on each side, sort of thing. Yeah, it's a relative. It's relatively short as double albums go, about yeah. fifty-five minutes. Yeah. Um, but still, much you know that sits much more comfortably yeah. on, over two LPs than one. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Grant, I think we, are there any songs that you really wanted to talk about that we haven't covered so far? Oh, I mean, jump, there's a, a classic of... Well, it is, and it's interesting because I think it's hard. It's all resonated with other people. You know, I suppose Fucking Run was, um, you know, like... I'm from a background, again, pre-apartheid, you know, apartheid era. These sort of lyrics back then would have been crazy. Even now I'm listening to them going, geez, this yeah. is 1993. Yeah. This chick's not scared. No. Um, and um, did you, you listen know. to it with your kids? No, 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 no. Oh, this just, will be a nice album. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for the, just, for, like, just like Laura Marling yeah. that time. Oh. Um, and referencing to to being twelve, you know, just oh, yeah. like I did when I was twelve. I was, I, I was like, yeah, that's another one that really comes out of the blue as well. Yeah, I've actually yeah. I, totally out of the blue. I've actually never particularly understood that reference, even when I was twelve. I'm pretty damn sure she's not. Yeah. Literally talking about you know when she was twelve. Oh no! But boys fucking run when you're twelve. Yeah, they I, do. I think she means it, Drew. Yeah. I, I took mm. it as took it literally. Uh, yeah, I did. Hey, throughout high school, I took more than one friend to the abortion clinic. Not gonna lie. Wow. So yeah, uh, older boys sway the younger girls that have developed, etc. Yeah. So and although twelve might have just been like a provocative number. Like it's not. It's not like, far off. Of course, it's not, not far off. Not no, unusual yeah, no. at all no. to have your oh, I'm def- totally in love with you, babe, and then you never see him again, yeah. and then you're screwed. Yeah, literally. Mm, literally so, and yeah, carry. so um, I thought it was really like brave and like like yeah to have that in there and just to trip you up going seventeen and then. 12 yeah yeah like, <laughs> yeah just gonna drop gonna throw it out there see see what happens and people are like that can't be a thing and you're like <laughs> really you want to join yeah. the music scene <laughs> yeah it's a thing yeah and there's you've already mentioned the the vulnerability at the heart of that song as well that mm-hmm. uh she's hooked up with a guy casually overnight and then you know the next day comes and she's longing for a real emotional connection after this night, she, mm. he wakes up and gets up and says, "I've got a lot of work to do." Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And she and she knows yeah. that she's um, that's that she's in the wrong place. Mm. And yeah, look, I mean that line about you know I want all that stupid old shit like letters and sodas that just kills me. Yeah, mm. it's really mm. sweet. Yeah, yeah. But then she, she knows that back. she can have anyone that she wants, but she's scared, like most of us are scared of ending up alone in the end. Yeah, but being alone is sometimes pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true as well. I'm not well. going to lie because then no one messes with your Netflix account, so it's <laughs> pretty good. But yes, as we are all, as the the flawless people are partnered up, we shall not talk about that. That yeah. is fine. Um, but yeah, that is that was a really fun song to listen to. Um, I quite liked Gunshy as well. Um, 
sort of a bit more of that experimental side of her. She had like two guitar parts that were interweaving to each other. And then two, they weren't dueling though. They weren't against one another. It was just sort of, they were just picking different parts of it. And then they played, she played around a bit with the stereo as well. So I don't know if you got to listen to that one with the headphones on, but she had dual vocals as well. And the different vocals parts would come out sort of left and right as well, which is something that I think more vocalists and more sort of when you're thinking about something, stuff like that, wish more people would do it because I think it's really cool. It is cool, but sometimes I only wear one headphone. Yeah. And then I'm and like, what did I miss? And the other, I've got an ear infection on my right side and I'm muffled hearing on that side of the moment. So I, maybe it didn't sound that cool after all. Just, <laughs> maybe it sounded terrible. I just don't remember it properly. It was cool. Yeah. Yeah. I put little hearts on like definitely on flower and also for, um, is it Soap Star Joe? Yep. Yeah. They say harmonica, Americana. Mm, yep. like a bit of that. Um, so I really enjoyed how it's a refrain and then it comes in with the drums and stuff during the dashboard lights refrain mm -hmm. that comes in like a couple of times so uh that's the real chorusy sound really americana and a little bit like like interesting and about this hero of the american dream kind mm. of stuff but yeah i love that really... i love that song you know you've got this great all-american hero Looking for something attractive to save, yeah. the lyric goes. <laughs> yeah. And he eventually gets old and dissolute and impotent, and that's a metaphor for America too. Yeah, hmm? it works. In cool. 1993, and it's truer now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely... It's to like, your experience and your life. I mean, yeah, isn't that weird? Yeah. It's definitely... and Check out the thinning hair, check out the aftershave, check out America, you're looking at it, babe. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely it didn't feel stuck to its early 90s at all. Like I'm listening to it going, you could put, you'd probably have to have a few more dance songs on there, but you could put this out now and it's still those same themes of trying to find your own identity and fighting back against people, mostly men, who are telling you you can't do things or telling you the things you're supposed to do. So it definitely felt pretty timeless to me along those lines as well. Did you have anything else you wanted to cover before we go for a final pitch? Well, I think you can hear the influence of Exile and Guyville now in everything from commercial beer moths that immediately followed it like Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette. Interesting you mentioned that because my wife said upon hearing this when I played it for her yesterday and I've been listening to it for a while she said Alanis this, this sounds like Alanis Morissette and I'd said interesting you say it because I heard Hole and Courtney Love so yep. there you go huh? and also flashing into the present also Courtney Barnett and mm -hmm. Cape, uh, Camp Cope as well so I think it's a very important record in that sense. I think uh, a generation of younger female songwriters have come up going, you know, actually I can talk like that mm -hmm. too. I can mm. be really unvarnished in the way yeah. that I... Permission. Yeah, I think, it, I think it was a record that probably gave a lot of people permission. And the fact that she's never come close to achieving anything as resonant since, I think to me only magnifies the greatness of it and the significance of that achievement at the time. Maybe it's the sort of thing that she only could have done as a debut when she was too young and yeah. unafraid to fail, you know. She wouldn't have thought that this was going to be a big thing, probably. She was raw, she's naive, she's shooting for the moon. And when you're that age, who cares, you mm. know? It's, it's interesting that I didn't look up a lot of the history with her and Matador, but that Matador would go... Hey, twenty-six-year-old, you've made an eighteen-track debut album. Sure, we'll put that out. Like it feels like the kind of thing that were a label when she said to them, "Hey, I've got an eighteen-track response to uh, Exile on Main Street." They might go, hmm, "Maybe you can save that one for like a second or a third album. Maybe mm -hmm. just give us a straight four ten tracks now." But they would, 
they obviously sound it sounds like they just got on board and were like, "Yep, yeah, whatever your vision is, we're for it." That's that's right. And yeah, if you did explain it like that, you know, it's like you, you tongue, tell the young people that today, they won't yeah. believe you. <laughs> but uh, apparently, yes, look, they were Matador advanced advanced uh, them some money to make a single record, and she's like, "Well, I want to make a double. Do you think they'll advance us twice as much money?" And they yeah. actually did. It was it still there wasn't very much money. Yeah, sure. <laughs> we're still talking about. <laughs> Uh, a shoestring uh, recording just, by yeah. the standards of of the time, but yeah. uh, but they clearly believed in believed in her and mm. believed in what she could do, and I, I think you know that just speaks to the fact that I think Courtney Barnett's actually a pretty good comparison mm-hmm. because when she appeared too, it was like this. It felt like a wholly original new voice, even though sure there had been yeah. uh, antecedents beforehand of people. You know, you could see where she was coming from. But it felt completely fresh at the same time, and I think that would have, uh, I think, for the first people hearing Liz Fair, I, I mm. can imagine them feeling the same way. Yeah, cool. Um, did you want to? So, was that your final pitch, or did you want to do your final pitch now? Well, I, I think uh, you know maybe the way to go out would be to just briefly touch on the last song, which is mm-hmm. "Strange sure. Loop." Yep. Uh, there is a lyric, "I only wanted more than I knew." I think that really sums up this album. And the opening couplet of it, the fire you like so much in me is the mark of someone adamantly free. That is Liz Fair all over, someone that's not going to be dictated to by anyone. And the sound of that song as it's kind of shuffling and shambling to a close mm. and it all feels like it's mm. falling apart. It's deliberately messy and imperfect and warts and all. And that's why, to me, this album is flawless <laughs> because it owns all of those imperfections like its yeah. creator. Awesome. George... Final thoughts and a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Ah, final thoughts. Uh, it was cool to listen to the actual whole record for the first time. Like it was just a name that was banded around, etc. Um, and yeah, I've been listening to a lot of the Riot Girl stuff and some of the Indie Girl stuff. And as you know, I'm still listening to it now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've been playing it for some time. So it was really cool uh, to actually have a full listen through. So there were certain things in here I picked out that I really enjoyed and I her indifference like she sounded just so bored and indifferent in half the songs you're like why are you even doing this This, like why are you in the studio uh but then coupled with the harmonies and Mm. coupled with the angelic sounds i was like oh okay fair enough um which was cool but i must say i still i put it down and went i've got the the other people i had to go and go back and listen to my other artists of the same era because I was like, it was nice that this was a reminder of this stuff, but instrumentally I found it a bit of a struggle. And I've said this before, which is when a vocalist sings the same melody as their own guitar line, and so often I struggle because to me the vocals are a different instrument and they should be singing like the bass shouldn't be the guitar mm-hmm. and the guitar shouldn't be the vocals and too often I was going I know where you're going with your vocals because that's where your guitar is going. going and I found so I found that a real struggle so there everything about this should be a tick list of things that I love as a person so I'm just like she's owning a sexuality she's swearing a lot i'm on board with that um and she's playing guitar she's being herself and she's doing all the the stuff that i really really love and i love that this exists because it's influenced so many people that i will that i listen to now but i personally couldn't find it a flawless album because i'm not sure that i would go back and listen to the whole hour again 
I know, like like one, like the whole thing in mm, one go. End to end. Yeah, end to end. So I'm sorry that I didn't find it flawless, but I did really enjoy going to it and listening to it and finding bits and and especially when I was at work. Yes. Listening to it. And I was like... And this is a lot of work. Well. Yeah, yeah. I had my headphones on and I was just like, really? if only you people knew <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm listening to right now. So it's not a flawless record, but I think it's an iconic record. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's 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 my my end. Cool. Page. Thank you. Thank you, George. <laughs> Grant. Oh, Speak so eloquently. I've got a journalist. I've got you speaking so well. It really sucks sometimes to I'm be in the, the African. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you poor middle-class white guy. Please do tell me about your plight. Oh, jeez, tell you what. Having to live in the land of milk and honey for the last <laughs> 14 years. Um, look, I, I, I'd say I, I didn't, it's not flawless for me to rip the band-aid off as mm-hmm. Liam's done so many times before. Find another bit. Um, and I, 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 I'm not sure that I would say it was timeless. I think the elements of it, for mm-hmm. sure. But uh, you could tell... I think on 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 having this conversation now, it's debut album, a bit mixed, a bit underdone here, but um, maybe trying too hard in parts, and maybe um, I'm not sure that to be honest, I believe her when she says she was just writing the songs. I think we are a product of our environment as well. And she, there must have been contextual, if it was a friend or it was you know part of her that you mentioned out of the song in particular in the seven uh, the seven veils, um, and so. For mine, great to listen to, for sure. But I, I got a bit, I felt, and I'm just a male, I felt a bit confused in, in listening to it. Even, you know, multiple times, I'm like, I feel like I, I'm a guy who likes to flow and I'm like, whoa, one time you're angry and then and you feel like you, you're the victim and then the next song, you're the abuser. And I'm like, oh man, this is all so much for me. So, um, good, cool listen, absolutely. Well, I listen to it again, for sure. Probably though, agree with you in relation to end to end. Um, just not there. But the contextual, what why it means something for you is awesome, and I really, um, I think that's the value of this sort of a, an environment. Is I'm like, wow, but I can see why, why I could empathise with you, why it would be so relevant for you at that time, um, because it's a challenge. That is a challenging time for you as a human, us as people, um, and there's this chick from across the way that's not afraid to be both and all of this in one which arguably we all are in our early 20s so mm. thank you for bringing it it was really cool to listen to oh, it was a pleasure yeah. cool that's that's kind of why i do what i do i like introducing people to yeah wonderful wonderful stuff yeah cool. so yeah um for me yeah i really loved the album i loved all 18 songs um, I, there's no one song that I think, oh, I didn't really like that one, or I, you know, this one's just filling space or anything like that. And you can, the idea of a debut 18 song, 55 minute double record response to a Rolling Stones just blows my mind every it's time. Outrageous. Yes, it's aspirational. Absolutely yeah. I don't know outrageous. that. I don't know that album. I know I've heard it a couple of times, but I don't really know it that well. And I would love to have been able to have assessed this album by listening to that one as well. So I think there's a missing piece there. Yeah. My, my thing was. I felt like she had three types of personality on the record. She had, I'm out the front of a relatively straightforward indie country, like indie rock tinged with country Nashville sort of stuff band. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I talked about it before. I'm alone in a studio with a guitar. I'm going to get drunk and just, you know, smash out some stuff and see what happens. And then I've got my super experimental side. So that's like all the pianos in the synths and that sort of stuff. 
and it felt like the three of those things didn't all work together on the album for me. So I felt like she could have had the the rock band side and the solo side or the solo side and the experimental side. Probably not the rock band side and the experimental side. I think that would have been too much of a jump between the two things. But I just, yeah, the, the album didn't flow as much for me, but, which is crazy for me because then I then go, okay, well, what will you lose? Like, no, no, all the songs are great. So I don't, mm. normally we go, oh, if you took out this song and that song, it would be flawless. So I can't do that in this case because I love them all. But the flow of it didn't really mm. work for me. So that's why I would say great album. And yeah, <clears throat> like Grant said, your passion for it is awesome. And that's why we do this podcast. But yeah, probably not flawless for me. It's probably just in uh, rounding off, just touching on Exile and Main Street for a moment. I think probably the fact that you know, that is a an album that I am very familiar with certainly helps. And sure. that in itself is, I don't think even the biggest Rolling Stones fan in the world uh, including Mick Jagger, by the way, uh, would say that Exile on Main Street is is flawless mm-hmm. because it's, it has lots of uh, <laughs> lots of issues with it. It didn't sell very well at the time yeah. it came out, but it ended up being regarded as something quite transcendent and maybe their, their greatest achievement as a rock and roll record, uh, which uh, was, you know, quite shoddy in its production. It's murky. It's a bit hard to see the bottom of that record. Mm-hmm. And yet ends up sort of absorbing and transcending those flaws somehow. So uh, the the pacing and the sequencing of Exile in Guyville was sort of set to match that. And, yeah. Okay. A, and you know there are there are at the risk of undercutting why I'm here. <laughs> I think no. you know there are you you could certainly pick out things that are that seem flawed about the record. I think the point that I'm making though this, this is one of those flawed flawed masterpieces in a way that ends up getting past its limitations cool well on that note thank you very much thank Andrew you. for coming thank you, in Andrew. that was really it was good awesome it's been uh, a great really pleasure good. thank you everybody for listening we have Facebook Twitter and Instagram and we are Flawless AMP on all of those so join the conversation share like our posts give us a rating every little bit helps us find more music lovers like you as mentioned we also now have a Patreon we are patreon.com slash Flawless AMP if you'd like to back us please check that out Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.